You're listening to Consolidate That. Welcome back to Consolidate That, Ivan. Great to see you again today. Really excited about our guests. Some of the people that listen to our, our episodes and, and actually listen to our special that we did at VMX might recognize our guest today. We did a quick brief introduction and in an a interview with him there and excited to hear more from him. So we're excited to have here Dr. Gary Ackerman, and we're going to talk about an interesting topic. It's going to be more geared towards the veterinarians that are selling the practice. From the background, Dr. Gary Ackerman is a veterinarian, and then he ran his practice for about 20 years, and then transitioned to helping veterinarians to sell their practices. So he sold his multi-location veterinary practice in 2001, and then since then, he's been advising and brokering practice sales real estate consultant, tax planning, over $1.5 billion in veterinary and tax deferred transactions. Wow. And he's a financial advisor to veterinarians between 2009-2017, around $750 million in corporate practice sales since 2018. So that's only in two and a half years. And 100 plus corporate practice sales, 70 plus joint venture private equity sales with a holistic approach. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Ryan, Ivan, nice to be here and it's got an interesting conversation today. So I want to jump in. I mean, the market is so frothy right now. There's so many sales. There's so much going on. There's, I think that everybody said, I don't remember which study it was, but they said that there's about 30 to 40 brokers are contacting each veterinary practice that is up for sale out there or hoping they are for sale. The multiples are growing. I mean, we heard 15, we've heard 17x. So how in this environment, I mean, your business is targeted to help veterinarians to sell. How in this environment competitive it is to get to it, I guess, with your experience and the background, you're well known in the industry, but is it hard to get clients these days with all the consolidators and the, the market as it is today? So we actually are tracking over 60 companies that are buying practices now. I think you're at 30 or 40, it's not 30 or 40 brokers. Most of the 30 or 40 that are contacting them are business development people from the different consolidators. So everybody out there has got the business people from the different companies knocking on their door, sending them emails, sending them texts. You're overwhelmed if you've got a nice practice right now. Somebody's coming in the door a couple of times a week. And so that's it's very easy to go down the path that you're talking about as doing a sale right now, because it's used to be you might have to go out and and, and go after you know a company or inquire of a company. Now they're coming after you. And so it's really a seller's market right now. The 15X and the 17X that you were referencing, we've definitely seen that where you know, there's, there's transactions that are going on that we're seeing that are higher than that. It's just a matter of how big you are, how many practices you are, you know, what the situation is for the company, a lot of different things that can contribute to that. That's amazing. And with that, what is the appetite from the veterinarians? Because the baby boomers are sort of, there's still practices by baby boomers that are good for sale. But if you're looking at the general population, this is veterinarians that want to continue working for the next five, 10 years and more. And then because of this environment, everybody feels like they're not going to get on the bus. So there's more and more of these sort of joint venture deals. How do you see that environment changing? And how do you see these younger vets that own practices, how do they interact with consolidators and what's the appetite from their side to, to actually sell? 
So we're seeing our client base is, is going younger. Over the last year to two years, we're definitely seeing that. It used to be the baby boomers that were looking to sell. There's not, especially in the larger practice, there's not a lot of those practices where the younger veterinarians are raising their hands and say, I want to buy the entire practice because it's just gotten too pricey in a lot of circumstances. So they might want to buy a part of it or they might want to participate in it. We've seen a lot of these joint venture and private equity transactions go on from a company perspective. If you keep some skin in the game on the part of the selling vet or the associates or both, that's a risk mitigation tool. And they really want to do that even more when you're getting into these higher multiples because they're bringing more risk to the table when that occurs. And so they really feel like it adds stability. If you look at the numbers, it certainly appears to from the stuff that we've been tracking. And I see that occurring more and more simply because of the size of these practices. If you if you want to try and do an exit of a big practice to associates, you're you're on a 10-year to 15, 20-year plan. And a lot of the veterinarians are not planning that far out. And so our our rule of thumb when we're doing the, the holistic planning that we do is if you're within five to eight years of exiting, it's probably a really good time for you to be be looking right now. This is a a market with multiples that you don't necessarily want to miss. And for those that are a little bit younger, you know, doing the joint venture, the private equity is a situation that we allow you to exit at the current multiples, monetize part of the practice value, but still retain a piece of the practice or a piece of the parent company and, and typically do fairly, fairly better on that second piece that's retained. And you can generally hold on to it for two to five or six years. So there's a, an ability to exit at the current multiples. Tax rates are lower right now. Multiples are higher. You know, if tax rates go up, if interest rates go up, all of these are going to affect valuations. We see a lot of interest in people capturing at least a piece of this market right now. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's a couple of things that you mentioned there. We, we drilled down in previous episodes on the different acquisition models. So when we're talking about joint venture, there's the one that you mentioned. So the owner retains part of the practice. And then there's also rolling equity, right? So a lot of consolidators right now allowed to roll equity into part of the sale proceeds to roll into the parent organization. Old Pathway was sort of, I think they were sort of innovative with it right now. I think most of them are doing that. What is that? And I have sort of two twofold question. One, is there an average what consolidators allowed to roll? Like if I'm a younger guy and then I have a lower risk tolerance and longer horizon, maybe I want to roll more. And what are they allowed to roll in order to benefit at the end from the parent organization? And the second question that I have is that, do you feel like this retention of a part of a practice has been an effective way to motivate veterinarians? Is it really not disconnecting them or is it keeping the interests of the parent organization with the single practice? If I'm retaining 40% of the practice, I'm not really thinking about the overall organization and the benefit. I still, you know, I got paid out and I'm still working on my practice rather than the organization as a whole. And if there are certain strategies or synergies at the top of the organization, I'm not interested to do anything to benefit those. So lots of meat on those questions. <laughs> There's a lot of different things related to it. We really view joint ventures and private equity investments as two different things. If you're a joint venture, you're investing still or continuing to invest in a business that you already own, and you may be bringing your associates in, but you're not taking on any more risk or anything. If anything, you're probably reducing your risk because you're now not a 100% owner. You're also continuing to get the cash flow. And so you're asking about how much 
companies allow. We typically see ranges of 20 to 40%, but we've fairly commonly done those where the, the selling doctor retains 49%. And we we like those from a low risk perspective because you already know the financials of the of the business you're investing in. You're already in it. So you're if anything, you're reducing your risk a little bit. And historically, the value for the part two that you'd be selling in two, three, five years has gone up substantially. We've got a lot of metrics where we've tracked that. And so we have a pretty good idea as to what's going to happen in that department. Conversely, if you're investing in the private equity entity that owns 50, 100, 200, 500 practices, that's a financial investment. That's an investment. And it's probably the only investment for your portfolio that you can do on a pre-tax basis. If you sell your practice, you take the cash and walk away and do anything else, then you're paying taxes. But this is generally a tax-free roll-up into the parent company, which is a leveraged veterinary entity. It's, It's private equity. They historically have been the moderate risk private equity, but that's absolutely more risk than your practice. And so what we see in those circumstances is the returns are higher, but the percentage that you roll over is lower. So as far as seeing a 40 or 49% rollover into private equity, that's extremely uncommon. More commonly would be 10% or 20%. Now, Gary, if I could take us a little bit further, higher level from, from where we are there and talk a little bit about what people should expect. So for veterinarians that are listening, that are looking to sell their practices, and also I think it's just as important for the consolidation groups that are looking to purchase the practices to sort of hear maybe some of the information and the advice that's getting getting told to the sellers. But what are some of those things that can just right off the bat go wrong? What are people not expecting to happen when they're going to sell their practice and, and what can go wrong that, that you try to prepare them for? So... The biggest thing that can go wrong that we see is do-it-yourself and bad local advice, getting advice from people that are not well-versed in the veterinary industry. It's an easy do-it-yourself transaction because we have so many people knocking on doors of veterinarians. They are much more complex transactions now with the joint venture or the private equity and other earnouts and contingencies and things like that than they were five years ago. And, and these are being brought in because the numbers are higher, the risk is higher, and so the, the companies are trying to mitigate some of that risk. Probably one of the big hindrances to getting transactions done or getting it done efficiently is is just not knowing what to ask for, what to put into them and, and kind of going going it solo in an area that you're not, you know, this is probably the most material financial transaction of their lifetime and they should get good advice here, if anywhere. Other areas, probably the biggest issue is associate doctors. You know, associate doctors are generally intended to transfer if they're main producers at the hospital, then they're going to be required to go over as, as part of the transaction. And there's usually some financial incentives. There's usually contracts that may be assignable. But the big issue we have is if there's no contracts or vague promises or things along that line, associates are definitely something that can derail a transaction. And so we work really hard with you know, everything from JV portions to incentive equity to, to cash bonuses and all of these circumstances, we generally tell all of our sellers to be prepared to spend some money on your associates at the time of a closing. It's just what's going to be required. 
second biggest thing we see is landlord issues. If, and if you're the owner of the practice, then that's really not an issue, but about half of our transactions are leaseholds and landlords can be problematic. You're not as much a priority to them as getting the transaction done to you is. And we've seen landlords with their hands out. We've seen landlords that wouldn't cooperate. They're almost never gonna release you on the lease obligation. So there's a whole host of things that can crop up there and it just really depends on what kind of relationship you have with your landlord and how much they want to turn the screws. Other biggies that we see are probably one of the biggest ones is lack of very good detailed financials and things along that line where, where we're struggling to get out of somebody. Either they're not crediting production appropriately on the practice management software. And so we got to allocate, you know, bigger dollars towards the, towards the doctor contracts or, you know, we see multiple situations where there's tons of quasi personal expenses that not, that a buyer might not necessarily assume. They might not employ your wife or your son, or they might not buy your car, or they might not do all of these other things and they probably would deposit all the income. And so all of these are things that we address and do in our financial analysis, but the cleaner the financials are, the more you're following an aha chart of accounts where you've got a pretty normal routine veterinary practice to go look at a profit and loss statement, the easier it's going to be to get your transaction done. And the reality is the further you are away from that, we try and normalize it. We try and add it all back. We'll certainly do a better job than a veterinarian will ever do on, on their own. And we're much more incentivized to do it appropriately than a company is. But if it's not good data, it's really hard to get all of that transferred back to our selling doctors. And so we see a lot of a lot of issues with that. Excellent. Going back to the transaction, sort of the, the models that, that they're done, you said that up to 49%. We've spoken to a couple of consolidators that they said at that range, they're having trouble motivating change, let's call it. So for example, if they're stayed as a sort of 49% owner, it's almost half. And then basically when they're approaching, so veterinarian may want to change, you know, add services and anything just like you run your own practice. So you're a benefactor of the final sort of cash flow production, you own 50% of it, and then you do risk your business. That's really cool. But then when the parent organization comes in and says, we're going to change our vendor that sells us amoxicillin and it's a different brand today, and then they'll just say, no. And we heard that happening because the less sort of equity the parent organization has, the less veterinarians are engaged in the success of the parent organization rather than their own piece. Is that relevant? Have you seen that before? So a couple different parts to that question. I, I do see more engagement at the local level if they still own at the local level on the part of the veterinarian, because that's what you're going to get paid on eventually. But it's that's not that degree what i do see is there's a lot of difference between the buyers okay there's there's what we would term financial buyers that aren't operators they're just they come in and they're buying based on a number they may not even see the practice or meet with you or anything like that we've got others that are all about how do we work together to operate this in the best manner you need to be our analogy to doing a transaction it's kind of like dating you're dating a number of different consolidators and you're meeting them and understanding all about them and they're going to put on their best face that's what they do when they come in the first time they're they're meeting your daughter your baby okay and what will happen after that is you get engaged you do a letter of intent which is a little bit of a challenge because now you're a little bit adversarial because you're now negotiating your documents that are going to be done and then after that you're going to get married and when you're married how is it going to operate 
what we try to do is we, we've, we've actually got about a five-page questionnaire that we've gone out to anybody that we're doing transactions with, and we get them to fill it out that goes into, you know, how do you operate inventory? What computer systems do you use? What lab systems do you use? How do you compensate people? What's your vacation policies? Do you have a, a handbook, you know, a personnel handbook that we can get a copy of? This is all information that when we're working with somebody, we want them to be able to compare among different companies because it's material to what it's going to be like afterwards. I think there probably is a little bit more engagement, a little bit more awareness of the numbers when you're in a joint venture because you're you're frankly getting paid either monthly or quarterly on what those numbers are. Whereas if you're in a private equity, you're going to see it kind of at the end of the year. You're going to see numbers from the from the parent company, but you're and you'll see some numbers at the local level. You just won't see as much. And so unless there's some bonus system or something like that in play, we don't see the people look at it quite as closely when they're in a private equity situation as in a joint venture. But, you know, that's a relative thing. I mean, veterinarians are, are good people on the whole when they create these practices and build them. This is their baby. And just because you sold a piece of it or all of it doesn't mean that you're going to act significantly differently. I mean, most of the people we see sell it and go to work the next day feeling and acting the same way. They still care. And so I don't see a lot of change there when there is a significant change where I see pushback is if it impacts the quality of care they're giving or what they can do with their employees and things like that. That certainly can provide some some issues after closing. So with that, when, when we're selling a pr- part of practice and then we're saying, okay, we have all of these cool things that we're going to do after. I've, we've heard it all. It's like, well, there's general like five, you know, three, five things. We're going to do marketing. I'm going to optimize your HR. We're going to do, you know, all of that thing. How often do you see the consolidator actually articulating what they're going to do? Because we bump into quite a few of them where it's like, we're going to do all this magic. And then veterinarians are like, okay, you're a magician. So you're going to do magic. But they don't go down and say, okay, we're going to do marketing. This is exactly what we're going to do. This is how we're going to improve. We're going to change the website. We're going to improve search engine optimization. We're going to improve the ad tactics. Like there's none of that in the pitch decks that we reviewed. There's no structural to say, okay, we see your practice as an opportunity. You're going to own 49% of it. And we're going to do one, two, three, four, five. And this is going to lift that many points. This is going to lift that many points. And this is how margin is going to expand if you will do everything that we tell you. How tactical these console leaders are when they're going to these practices or it's all sort of blowing smoke. And then after that, it's like we, we see both. But what's your experience like? So a little bit was how tactical and how honest are they going to be up front? And it's not. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say, say that honest. second part. <laughs> I don't want to say it's honest, but how open. Are they going to be okay? Because I think a lot of them have the the those thought processes that in you know internally they're doing them. So I think what we see a lot of times is that the selling doctor here is well nothing's going to change, or not a lot will change. And the reality is that you have a couple others that are being real upfront. They said yeah, a few things are going to change, and they'll tick off some of the things that they're probably going to do. Where you really can get into what you're talking about if you're getting looking at social media or online presence, or if you're looking at ordering or things like that, you got to dig a little bit deeper when you're doing the intros. And you you frankly got to get past the business development person to the internal people at the companies to talk to them. And you can do that. The question is, are you going to do that during, you know, your due diligence before you sign a letter of intent? Are you going to do that afterward? Because that's going to involve a fairly deep dive and you might be doing it on five or 10 companies. That's commonly an area of due diligence on both sides 
after you're under letter of intent. You know, the, the companies are looking at you and looking at what your capabilities are, and they're looking at where they can can bring it in. The other thing that we see is, you know, some of the real progressive operators are getting almost a like a cafeteria plan of things that they can bring into your your practice that you can take on over time. Okay, they're not going to come in and do it all once, and they're not necessarily going to do it unless you want to do it. What we're seeing is skill sets. You know, some some good examples of this might be, you know, you're going to you want to expand your dental area. So they've got a company that will come in and help design a dental suite and they'll bring somebody in to do the training. Okay, so they can do that. Do you have to? No. Call centers are another good thing that you can utilize them or not. Online search engine optimization and things like that tends to be more central, but a lot of it is actually local. But you might find somebody central that's doing a better job of monitoring, you know, your Facebook page or your comments and and different things along that line. And so a lot of it is how do you integrate with the companies? Because some of the stuff they can put a dedicated person on it, you know, centrally that you just plain can't do locally. You're going to have somebody who's wearing many hats. That's doing it. But don't expect that you're going to jump into every single thing the first month post-closing. It could be a two or three-year process. Well, great. It kind of hits on the point where you said before where a lot of the veterinarians will show up to work that next day and be just as happy or work in the same way. Do you think that that comes from a more realistic or transparent view during the due diligence process on both sides? Or is it important, you know, we talk heavily about a stabilization period where you acquire a clinic and take time for them to sort of get used to the temperature of the water and, and figure out where they are in the new ecosystem. Do you think that that's important or, or do people get just as excited if day one they're showing up and they've got a new logo on their scrubs and, and new training manuals and things like that? So most of them are not going to change the logo and the training manuals are going to take time. Everybody wants the stabilization period because in particular, it goes back to the risk and things along that line. The companies first want to make sure that they capture what they acquired before trying to grow it. Okay, so they want to make sure that that this is what we bought. Let's make sure we know what we're doing. We don't want to get anybody mad. We don't want to lose staff. Let's make sure that we're doing this right. And let's just take a big, deep breath and make sure it's working for everybody. Then over time and, and also integrating with other people, you know, they run a typically a stronger manager operation than a lot of the selling doctors have because you know selling doctors almost invariably wear some of the hats that the manager might wear. It's routine for me to be telling selling doctors that ultimately your manager's going to have to do this because they'll never be able to hire another veterinarian that'll do all of the things that you do. And so, you know, in that, as you're slowly divvying up responsibilities that may have been centralized previously, you're going to find that there's going to be an interest on the part of other people on, on taking in some of these initiatives too, because you can, it can help with the practice. So there may be more people involved in the discussion as to what do we do or what do we not do. That makes sense. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit. So we're about 20, you know, 20 plus percent consolidated. We're certainly moving in, in the ingoing more in the next couple of years. There's a big window of opportunity, big multiples single veterinarian practices where they're at. I know that it's a huge risk for private equity. They don't want to buy them, but the multiples are pretty low on those. And then are there ways to acquire single practices and de-risk them? Do you see the transactions happening at the single veterinarian practices? And what is the general sort of temperature on that? So the temperature on that is rising, mostly because the temperature is so hot on the practices that everybody wants. And so there's been a lot of, not a lot, but a a moderate amount of desire to go off center, you know, from the three to six doctor practice and buy something smaller and grow it. It would be helpful if they're 
a reasonably good size single doctor practice, a million dollars of revenue or up. It would be helpful if they're in a good demographic area, if they've got reasonable facility, either expansion capabilities or, you know, obviously room to add a couple more doctors to it. But we definitely are seeing people that in lieu of doing a de novo or in lieu of buying something that's already got significant revenue and multiple doctors that are buying these, looking to get the doctor to stay on maybe a little bit longer. They might have to do a three or four year employment agreement rather than a two or three year employment agreement, just because they are so critical. And they're certainly, we're, we're starting to do some of these transactions and we're paying attention to that market because we see that as the more full-size practices are going to get thinner, there's going to be less to do. And, and the smaller practices become the bigger practices over time. And so, you know, the companies are certainly looking at ways to generate return and that a lot of it comes from growth. They're looking at that as more of a growth portfolio than buying something at a 15x and turn around and selling it at a 23x. Yeah. So these are the ones that are more focusing on the margin expansion rather than just arbitrage, right? These are the guys that will buy them and, and, and develop them. That's excellent. I want to go back to the role equity scenario. You mentioned it's like 10 to 15% that is happening at the moment. Is that because the private equity wouldn't want someone to get a bigger upside and they want to keep it all to themselves? Or is it because of the risk tolerance that the veterinarians have and they don't want to risk the proceeds from the transaction? Both of the above depends on the company. We see some companies that are really tight with their private equity and don't like to give out large numbers with it. Then we see other circumstances where 40% private equity up to 40% might be offered and we've got a seller that only wants 20%. And so that's a risk level. We generally are able to work around that. You know, we're trying to look at the sale pricing, how much is cash, how much is equity, what the prospects are for the company, what the financials look like on the company, and try to to marry what the individual needs with what the company is offering. Because we're usually going to have multiple offers. We're not beyond going and asking for something that they didn't get offered. <laughs> that's what we do. Awesome. Well, Gary, we we zoomed through 30 minutes very quickly here. I didn't even realize. But well, for all of those veterinarians that are, that are listening to us, where do they find you? How do they get your advice? How do they get in the line to get your services and help? Well, the first thing I would tell you to do, we do the same thing that you do. We're trying really hard to educate the veterinarians. We just think it's, you know, then you can make good decisions by being educated about what's going on in the market. So go to our website. It's ackerman-group.com. And on there, there's a knowledge base, which has got a couple dozen webinars and white papers and things along that line. If you can't find there some of the information that might be relevant to you related to valuations or transitions, then I don't know where to tell you to look because we, we really are trying to put a lot of information there. On our website, you can click a link and we'll do a free evaluation for anybody who's got a practice to give them an idea of where their EBITDA is now. And we'll send them you know, comps like on five or six practices that have sold similar to them in the last year to two years. That's kind of like Zillow for practices. And so we can we can certainly show them what's going on in the market for similar practices. And, you know, in doing that, we're going to get kind of a peek under the hood as to their numbers, because, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of different things that drive pricing and valuation and when you can do and stuff, but numbers are a big piece of it. And so we're going to have a, a good look out in the, if there's any areas that we think you might need to tweak or do better at or clean up or anything like that. We're going to certainly give you some ideas if you want to contact me. It's easy. G Ackerman at Ackerman-group.com. Send me an email. And we're happy to talk with everybody about their particular situation. Because even though this is all going on in a big industry, every sale is individual. 
it's personal and you know we got to get in there and the holistic piece when you introduce me is all about integrating your sale with your financial advice with your cpa with your real estate with all the other things that are integral that you should be looking at on these transactions because it's you know this is your biggest financial transaction of your life that's really helpful and i I usually ask for a book recommendation but i i do think that your knowledge base is the one to go to it's wonderful i know when we were planning this episode that was exactly where you you guided me as well and i was had more than enough to read there and lots of lots of great stuff so we really appreciate having you on the show i think there's a ton of great things that we can continue to learn from you we look forward to hopefully having you back on the show again soon that's great. Let me know. I'd be happy to come back. I just This is good education for everybody. Thank you for finding the time. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.